Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Chris Maybe. Friends, our first and foremost core value is to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. In our passage for today, Paul encourages us to be thankful to God in the church for Jesus Christ in two parts, as we firstly celebrate God's grace to Paul, and second, celebrate God's grace to the world. For two parts, the first one celebrating God's grace to Paul, the second is celebrating God's grace to the world. So firstly, God's grace to Paul. You know, are human beings free to invent their own individual definitions of the good life? Are we free to do that? Or are the true definitions of happiness and the good life given to us by God, who's our creator? Reasonable question, I think. You know, you know, all people seek to be happy in life, right? To be contented and live fulfilling and authentic lives, get the most out of life that they can. I mean, have you ever, I've never had a conversation with anyone who was purposed or felt their purpose in life was to be miserable. Have you? I mean, have any of you? I, I mean, that's, you just don't encounter that, right? If you were given the opportunity to tell the world, or even just a small part of it, who you are, and what motivates and facilitates your ability to live a life of happiness, what would you say? Well, last Sunday, I was at the, the Ohio State University's 143rd commencement to celebrate the graduation of my youngest daughter, Kendall, right, and various other young and old students who were matriculating with various degrees from various colleges within the confines of such a large university. And the keynote speaker was a, a woman by the name of Marcia Fudge. For those of you that pay attention to politics, you might recall, she is the current United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, the HUD Secretary. And uh, she did a, just a wonderful, she was a great job. Um, given the keynote address to the, to the you know, congregation or assembly of graduates. And I enjoyed both the brevity and the content of her speech, <laughs> with the exception of the fact that it was only partially truthful. She used her own personal testimony as a source of her motivation in her speech. She talked about her persistence in her quest to make a difference in the world and how her time as a student, an undergraduate student at Ohio State, uh, both informed and provoked her efforts, uh, ultimately leading to her current position as the United States Secretary of HUD, right? She talked about hard work, being a lifelong learner, giving every day your all, and being intentionally kind to make a difference in the world. Almost as if to say, if I can do it, you all can too. And I grew up in this horrible circumstances. I went to Ohio State. It kind of changed my vision. I went on to get a law degree, and now I'm the HUD secretary, right? I had a hard existence. You just work hard enough, you can do it. You know, and I enjoyed her comments. It wasn't too surprising. 
or unexpected to me what she left out, either on purpose or out of ignorance and unbelief. And you see people argue for what they think is the world's proper course all the time. The Apostle Paul was an educated man. He was a hard worker, motivated to make a difference in the world in his view of it. Not so different from the university elite or even the keynote speaker in her interest to motivate living the happy life, the productive life. Paul might have been pleased to tell the world how to live the happy life by learning, giving it your all and taking risks. Even if Paul was a bit more zealous, a bit more violent, even if in his previous life he was no more ignorant. And we can know about Paul's previous life because the book of Acts gives us several accounts before he became a Christian. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I mean, they'll come up on your screen and it's in the, it's in the supplemental handout out there if you had, happen to pick one up. But we're going to turn to Acts 26 and Paul's defense or apology to King Agrippa here where we read, starting in verse 9, this is Paul speaking, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition or imposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know, we know that Paul's not being hyperbolic there. Paul, whose also name was Saul, is his Hebrew name. He wasn't exaggerating because God gives us more information about him in his conversion story in Acts chapter 9, where we read starting in verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he led them by the hand and brought them into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. The world in our day and our age might turn to TED Talks or social media, news outlets, the academy, and the academic elite, or maybe even keynote speaker and speeches at the academy to access the things that make meaning and propel one to the happy life. But at the end of the day, and in the final analysis of Paul's life, Paul's life was changed for good, not by going to school, but by meeting Jesus. Paul was committed in his ignorance, militant, violent, and persistent. But the conversion story doesn't end here. For after this, Ananias, a disciple of Christ in Damascus, was told by the Lord to approach Paul, which we read about further as we go along in chapter 9 of Acts. So starting in verse 15, we get this text. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, 
has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, what do these accounts tell us about Paul? Well, to put it bluntly, Paul met the living Lord and was smacked upside the head with reality. Paul was abruptly exposed to the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Worldly wisdom, even religious zeal, was subverted with absolute truth. And the celebration of the gospel life for Paul had begun. And God makes it clear, and it's important for us to know, that it wasn't something Paul did or something that was based on Paul's work ethic. In Paul's ignorance, he was exposed to the living God. He was overwhelmed with and by true humanity. The ultimate philosopher who wrote the book of life and truth and grace, Jesus. How do we combat sin and death and live a life of happiness? The answer is simple and we're celebrating, friends. You have to meet Jesus. Not the Jesus the unbelieving world wants or the Jesus that affirms anything goes or that love is anything you want it to be, but the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. The Jesus that went to the cross to save his people from their sin and the death that awaits us all. And it's in this context, some 30 years after he had entered ministry, that we receive our text for today in Timothy's and, and his instructions to the leaders of the church in Ephesus and in Crete in the pastoral epistles. It's in this context that we receive this text. Back to the text, 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 14. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What's Paul doing here? At the very beginning of these final instructions, he's worked 30 years in ministry, he's been incarcerated in Rome, he's out of prison now, and he's in the last few years of his life that he knows, and he writes these three pastoral letters in First and Second Timothy and Titus to instruct the church, the leadership of church, of what's the gospel? How are you to behave? This is his first trustworthy saying, right? What's he doing here? He's celebrating the gospel and a transformed life. How Jesus had put him to work in his service as a messenger, not only to celebrate the good news, but to live it out. And it's important that we understand precisely what Paul is saying here. You see, what Paul is saying is that he was previously a blasphemer or heretic. Despite all his religious training, he was violent and hubristic. Dave, there's your word, right? If you were here last week, you heard hubris. What a great word. But it's intrinsic to our text here, because if you go directly into verse 13, we read the three things. He was a blasphemer, he was violent, and he was insolent. Well, the Greek word for insolent, we get the English word hubris from. Hubris. Remember what hubris is? It's a, I like it. It's a cool word, but I had to look it up. Um, <laughs> it's like pride on steroids. Violently confident. Haughty or overbearing. You know, Paul just, he wasn't just some guy that was committed to his country and his religion, or just some Sunday school kid who wanted to be a, grow up as an apostle. He was zealous, militant, and passionately committed to do away with Christians in his former life. This is the violence 
that occupied Paul's life and which he's paying testimony to here in this text. What a basis for a job in the church. What credentials did Paul have to be appointed to the service of Christ despite all his academic and religious achievements as a Pharisee in first century Palestine? He had no basis for love and peace. Just vitriol, persecution, and anger as character traits. And you might say, wow, I hope you do. I, I, I had a wow moment. Now, why would Jesus choose such a sinner to be the leading spokesman to the world about the gospel? Or was it Paul that chose Jesus? What do you think? Well, to Paul, the answer to that question is very clear, but just in case we're unconvinced, we have verse 14, which he gives us. Paul's celebration is the answer to the question of who chose whom. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Which is to say that in the original Greek text there, not only did His grace fill me up, it overwhelmed me. It overflowed for me. God stuffed me full with His grace. He overwhelmed me with it. I didn't choose Jesus, but He overwhelmed me with His grace. He changed me from the inside out so that I could make a conscious decision to follow Him and serve Him. Well, you might ask, what is grace? You know, we use churchy words all the time, and I like them, but I'm weird like that. I like the churchy words, but, you know, what grace and mercy, what's the difference? Is there a difference? Are they the same thing? We're singing about them today, right? What is grace? It's a great question, right? Grace is receiving something, something good. It's receiving something good that we don't deserve. Grace. Paul didn't deserve it, and the Lord met him on the road sent him the Holy Spirit and stuffed him full of grace, something good that he didn't deserve. For it was Christ that chose Paul, not Paul that chose Christ. Paul was persecuting Christians on one day, and three days later he'd met Jesus, turned completely around, been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the celebration of the gospel began. You know, but we also have verse 13, right? Jesus not only filled Paul with grace, but he showed Paul mercy. Well, what's mercy? Mercy is not receiving something bad that you do deserve. I was shown mercy. I deserve to be judged. I deserve to be condemned. I deserved God's greatest displeasure, Paul said, but he didn't give me what I deserved. He was merciful. All this because I was acting in ignorance. But more importantly, Paul tells us he was acting in unbelief. Paul received mercy because he acted ignorantly. The point is that in his salvation that Paul received, it was undeserved. His ignorance, neither an excuse for his sin or a warrant or license to receive the mercy of Christ, which is where grace comes in. For Paul received what he didn't deserve, which included being corrected in his ignorance and brought to think rightly coming and coming to faith in Jesus, right, through the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, for God's divine grace corrected Paul's ignorance and made him view the world in truth, causing him to believe in Jesus. And you might say, well, that's just a rationalization, Paul, this sin business. You know, like Paul was trying to weasel out or kind of rationalize his previous sinful actions here. But the Bible is clear that ignorance is no excuse. Whether we know the laws of the land and of God or not, we're still responsible to obey them. 
And actually, Paul is owning his ignorance here. Paul's previous life, he was zealous for God and meaning and purpose and happiness in life, but he said he was acting in ignorance because he was acting in unbelief. And if you're skeptical and not yet convinced, you know, in fact, you might say, well, Paul's not the only one who's got a good strategy in life for, to live the happy life, right? To live a content life. Paul's not the only one. You know, after all, maybe you were at the OSU commencement and you think the speaker was spot on completely. And I did enjoy her. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, right? Oh, and by the way, there have been many successful philosophies and approaches to the good life. God's grace worked for Paul, but I'm still not sure. Let me just briefly point out two disciplines that are popular in our world, in our day and age, that seek to answer the question, how can humans leave the life of ignorance and live the good life? Two disciplines that hope to lead to humanity to being content, philosophy and positive psychology. Well, the first one may not be of much surprise to you. And let me just say at the outset, I'm seeing some faces. I love y'all, but I see some faces saying, don't go too deep on this, Chris. So I'm not going to go on some huge lengthy excursus on this because you know, philosophy and positive psychology, they're fun to interact with, right? But I'm not going too deep here, but they're important for us to acknowledge and recognize when we think about God's grace and truth and happiness in life. You know, the philosophy of the ancient Greeks and Romans offer a form in the pursuit of wisdom that hopes to help people live a life of contentment. You know, they didn't just want to sit around and, hey, let's Let's pat ourselves on the back for thinking good. There was purpose in it. They wanted people to live a good life, a thoughtful life. Not a way of ignorance, but one that's happy because it's been examined. You know, Socrates, the ancient Greek, which sort of the foundation of even up to modern uh, philosophy now, and I'm, I'm not a philosopher, but to the extent that I know it, he was, Socrates was famous for saying the unexamined life is not worth living. Right, Charlene? I saw you nodding there. And, those that, and, those, and all the philosophers that followed since Socrates, even to our modern day, to one degree or another, agree that the pursuit of knowledge and moral and intellectual virtue is mankind's best way to live the happy life. Basically, what philosophy says is both ancient and more modern is that in order to be happy, you have to correct your ignorance with knowledge and live a life of virtue kind of like the keynote speaker at OSU, right? You want to be happy? Be motivated to learn your whole life and follow the virtue of being kind to people. More recently, and over the last several decades, the world's been exposed to a new discipline called positive psychology. You may have heard of this, or uh, especially if you've recently been in school or studied psychology. Um, you know, it builds on the philosophical notions of virtue as it attempts to collect data, observations, and scientific data that help to tell the world precisely what are the characteristics of people that are happy. Seems like a reasonable thing. You know, we can we get a better idea of this with a quote from Martin Seligman, who is a PhD guy. He was the president at his presidential address to the American Psychological Association some 25 years ago. The quote is, we can articulate a vision of the good life that's empirically sound and at the same time understandable and attractive. We can show the world what actions lead, what actions lead to well-being, to positive individuals, to flourishing communities and a just society. You know, and you see these disciplines are not intrinsically bad and they're helpful to study. 
And while they do provide wisdom, they fail to bring a person into ultimate reality and truth, the truth that they need to be completely happy in life. You see, friends, philosophy and positive psychology hope to heal the world from without, without acknowledging the sin that pervades all of us. They want to enhance the world's actions by positive thinking and kindness exemplified without accounting for the sick hearts that produce the ignorance and bad actions in the first place. As if to say, we can be happy in life and flourish if we just study, work hard, and try to be nice. Accept people for what they are. If we just copy the characteristics of those who report having meaningful lives and we work hard to follow their examples, we can be happy too. We can be happy if we correct our ignorance and work hard on being ethical and nice. But you see, friends, Paul's account of human flourishing and his celebration of the gospel of Jesus Christ parts ways with both of these disciplines in his conviction that due to the pervasiveness of all of our sin and death, humanity's final good and ability to celebrate life can only be found in this world through belief and relationship with the world's only perfect human being, Jesus Christ. Paul's framework, which we find throughout the New Testament, identifies humanity's supreme good as sharing in the life of God through the person of Jesus Christ. To Paul, the New Testament authors, and more importantly to Jesus, no other philosophy or strategy will do. Why, why does NPC exist? What's our purpose as a church? What are the core values we hold dear as we work to live and bring the inerrancy of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Reformed faith, and to do our part to be obedient to the Great Commission on each other and our world? This is why we exist. At the first, it's to celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ that brings us from darkness into light, ignorance to truth, and disbelief into a vital faith. You see, the gospel, friends, isn't just about feeling secure that you know where you're going when you die. It's not less than that, but it's much more. It's the source of our happiness in the here and now, the philosophy of life that leads to flourishing in all human beings, the internal change that atones for our sins and transforms our affections, which make us happy and cause our communities and world to flourish. And this text is a wonderful invitation to believe. Paul says, God, if you can save me and correct my ignorance and bring me to the truth in a vital and happy life of faith in Jesus Christ, you can also save anyone. Which leads to the second part of our passage and how God uses us to display Jesus as we celebrate the gospel to our watching world together. Part two, celebrating God's grace to the world. You know, if you've been following along, I hope you have. To this point, you might think that Paul's thanking Jesus for his faithfulness and that Jesus saved Paul because he was ignorant because maybe Jesus felt sorry for Paul. Something like that. No, what's Paul say in verse 13? But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. But we don't want to get this wrong. In verse 15 and 16, they keep us from thinking wrongly about this and help us to understand Paul more, more completely. 
back to the text, verses 15 and 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know, and yet verse 15 can kind of trouble us, can't can it? You know, is Paul suggesting in verse 15 when he says he's the foremost sinner that, you know, he's sinning now more at the end of his life, sinning more than he was at the beginning? You know, does that verse give us license to sin? You know, as if, you know, and let me just say, as one of your pastors, the answer to that question, in case you're wondering, is no. Right? Paul is not saying happily, I'm a sinning machine and I'm proud of it. Paul says he's the chief of sinners at the end of his life, not because he's sinning more, but because he's more aware at the end of his life as he's grown in grace of his sin and of the holiness of God and his perfection. You know, that's worth further discussion, you know, because we, I don't want us to miss that point, because Paul's marveling his conversion specifically because he knew himself to be so bad, persecuting the people of God in his previous ignorance, religious vigor, and worldview. And it's here, and it's in this mindset that Paul refers to himself as the foremost of sinners. You know, he cannot mean that he now sins more than anyone else in the world. For other places in the New Testament, he said his conscience is clear. You know, in addition, at least twice in the Corinthian correspondence, he tells the people to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, Jesus didn't sin. If Paul's trying to imitate Jesus and Jesus didn't sin, he's not telling people, go ahead and just sin on up. I mean, that's not what he's saying here, right? So what's he mean? Well, as I mentioned, there's, there's, two, there's two possibilities, and I think it's probably both, but the first I mentioned, but as Paul has matured in his faith, he now recognizes his sin more. You know, and Pastor Dave, when we go through our partnership class, he draws this figure on the board, whatever we call that, the marker board, where we recognize at our point of conversion that we're sinners, we need Jesus, and as we go through our lives after we come to faith, the gap between God's holiness and our sin widens, and we see God in His perfect holiness more, and we also see ourselves as sinners more. But we're so, you know, we know that we're saved by grace and mercy, and that the cross covers all of that. That's part of our experience in the Christian life. But secondly, there's more because Paul seems also to be referring to the fact that his previous persecution of the, in his previous persecution of the church, he was the foremost sinner, right? For in his persecution of Christians, he did the most to hinder others from coming to faith in Jesus, yet it allowed God to save Paul as a perfect example of his mercy and grace. You see, friends, the more we know we need Jesus because of our sin, the more we realize just how much grace God's grace does for us. Look again at verse 16. For this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Just imagine Paul, Paul's witness to the watching world in his day, right? He goes from this violent, angry, persecutory Pharisee wanting to bundle up Christians and smoke them all, burn them, or whatever he did, um, kill them, to a man of grace, a man who had received and his life had been transformed by the gospel, to a man of peace and happiness and joy, even amidst sorrow and suffering. Imagine if you were hanging out with Paul 
when he was a Pharisee and you saw how he behaved, and then you saw him 10 years later after God had transformed his life. I remember that guy. Yeah, I remember him. He was the angry, violent guy who was cussing out Christians a couple years back, and look at him now. He's happy, peaceful, inviting the whole world into the grace of God and Jesus. Wow. God really did change that guy. Look at Paul's life as an example of how the gospel changes everything. Look at the gospel and celebrate God's grace to you that turned your heart of stone, ignorance, and anger into a humble and happy existence by your faith in Jesus. One example of the effects of Jesus and the work of God's grace on our lives. And we can and should celebrate too, for all, all of us, if you believe, are displays of God's grace and mercy. All of us who believe. For all of us, we're ignorant in our unbelief, but we were born that way. But God saved us through His mercy and grace. You know, we celebrate in our resurrection when we believe we increasingly celebrate going from Jesus' enemies to Jesus' friends to Jesus' family, you see. And when we meet together for worship, when we do Bible studies or journey on Monday night as men meet for ELL, as we saw the wonderful testimony, when we go down on campus to interact with students and pray with them, we meet at the Campus Outreach Vision and contribute our resources, time and treasure to that ministry. When we go to coffee houses and football games, work and play, we display as we celebrate our great love for God and the grace that He's given us, our love for each other and our mission in the world. You know, you might know, that in the United States, people are leaving the church in droves. About two weeks ago, I had breakfast with a pastor friend of mine who just retired from ministry of 40 years. He's in a different tradition, a mainline Protestant tradition. He's my friend, and uh, we had breakfast, and he sent me an article beforehand that we could talk about, which uh, was written by some PhD guy who's also a pastor in the American Baptist tradition. And what it does is it reviews the demographics uh, and statistics on the church today. Did you know that the PCA is one of two Protestant denominations that's growing in the United States? One of two. Every other single Protestant denomination is hemorrhaging members, as is the Catholic and Orthodox Church and other Christian traditions. You know, and I don't tell you that with pride, but I can't help but ask the question, why? Why is the PCA one of the only Christian groups that's growing in the United States? Well, I believe we're growing because of our values. Because we preach and teach God's grace every Sunday and in our ministries on Monday through Saturday that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, us, all of us. That the Bible is the truth and without error and that the great commission and the mission of the church to tell people about Jesus is not an optional thing for true Christians. We celebrate the gospel, we love our city, and we connect in our community. Our mission here is that we believe that God, as God's servants in a broken world, we should seek to live Christ's grace and truth so that lives in Dublin and beyond may be transformed by His love.
And here is the celebration. How do we respond when something really great happens in our lives? What do we do? All of us. How do you respond when something good happens? You don't crawl in a corner and just go, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, 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 I mean sometimes you do. I do. But uh, <laughs> what, what do you do? You can't help but tell your spouse and send text messages and call people on the phone and tell your buddies and post on your social media stuff when good things happen. You can't help it. You can't help it. Maybe you just break out in song, singing in the shower or something. You know, we just celebrated Kendall's graduation last weekend. What did we do? We dressed up a little. My wife said, you might want to get a little more fancy than that. Um, bless her heart. <laughs> she did. It was okay. I'm glad I did. But we dressed up a little bit. We went to the convitation. We took pictures, right? We sent the pictures out. We yelled for joy. We yelled for joy. We laughed. And we had a family dinner with extended family, all to celebrate the happiness of the moment. We celebrated the good news, and we did it together. That's what Paul's doing here. And, you know, what we hope to do every single day here at NPC. But he isn't celebrating the hard work, but the work Jesus did for him, for his grace and his mercy, and for the privilege that Paul was given to tell people the best, dare I say, only news that the world really needs to hear. The saying is trustworthy, friends, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so finally, even in this short letter to Timothy to help guide the church for the future, Paul breaks out in the song. He simply can't contain himself in his testimony to this point in his life without sharing his joy, without celebrating the good news. And so he breaks out in song. Verse 17, right? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. For Paul, he's not just celebrating his own salvation or the fact that he knows where he goes when he dies. He's celebrating his relationship with the king of the world and all creation. For in his celebration of the gospel and God's grace and mercy, we see his acknowledgement of God's transcendence and imminence, right? Or in other words, for God is everywhere and yet he's personally present. He's immortal and invisible, and yet he's the one who blinded him on the road and indwells his people by his spirit. Jesus is Paul's God, the one and only God with the Father and the Spirit, and He deserves honor and glory forever and ever. Truly, Paul says, or in the Greek text, amen. Friends, our purpose in life is to be happy by being completely and fully human. And as Christians, each day that we celebrate the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ, we become a little more human, a little more complete, and guess what? A little more content. Core value number one at Northwest Presbyterian Church is this, friends, that we find tremendous value in celebrating the gospel of grace in the good news about Jesus. And we want everybody to celebrate with us, including you all. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.